listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and this episode is recorded here in Seoul in the NK News Studio on the morning of November the 23rd, 2022, and my in-studio guest today is Dr. Gordon Flake to talk about Indo-Pacific regional security and, of course, North Korea and its uh, missiles. But first, please leave a review about this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you use, and share this episode with colleagues and friends and even people you don't know and don't like. On Spotify, you can leave a rating but no reviews. But please do that anyway. And if you're listening on YouTube, please click like and subscribe. Secondly, check out NK News. You can find it at nknews.org, where there are lots of new in-depth stories each and every day put out by my wonderful and very, very intelligent colleagues. Consider buying a subscription for a year. It's much more affordable than you think. In fact, if you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and that helps to fund their excellent work. Thirdly, follow nknews.org on Twitter. Okay, my guest today, Dr. Gordon Flake, who is CEO of the Perth US Asia Centre at the University of Western Australia. Before moving to Australia and becoming an Australian citizen, like me, he spent 25 years in the US foreign policy community focusing on the Korean Peninsula and Northeast Asia. You can find him on Twitter at LG Flake. Thank you for coming on the show, Gordon. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Uh, Why are you in Korea right now? I was invited to speak at a TV Joseon Global Leaders Forum uh, for the second year in a row, actually, this time in person. And I have right. to say, it's nice to be in town. And Western Australia let you out, and presumably <laughs> they're going to let you back in again. Now, we're, we're beyond that now. As of March of this year, our borders are well and truly open. In fact, uh, it's a bit like stepping back in time to come to Seoul with masks everywhere. We haven't had masks for the better part of three years, actually. Ah. So. Now, recently, uh, I'm sure you're aware, you've been following the news here, North Korea has fired more missiles in a short space of time than ever before. Is this significant, and are you concerned? Yes, and yes. Uh, By my count, 32 in the month of November alone. Uh, In one day, I think we had 23, which is quite quite shocking. And that was, it felt a bit like showing off at a certain point. Yeah, it did. Um, Both of them corresponding to my trips, and interestingly, an issue that hardly came up on either of my trips. And so... Ah. I don't know what the right analogy is. It's certainly not the boy who crawled wolf. It's mm. probably more like the, the wolf who repeatedly jumped over the corral and back and back and back and forth again. Right. And it did it so often, people have just stopped paying attention. Uh, and, and so clearly concerning, clearly increasing capabilities, uh, in, both in frequency and seriousness is real, mm. but it's not garnering a lot of uh, international media attention. What about political attention? It is, but again, if you compare this to where we were in 2017, yeah. 2018, you know, my button is bigger than your button, fire yes. and furious as the world has ever known. It's, it's, it also feels very different to that. So we had a G7 statement, uh, movement in the UN Security Council, obviously uh, at the series of summits in, in Asia this past week, uh, plenty of commentary about it. But it's not like this is a standout crisis compared to where it had been in years past. Is that, I guess, part of the law of diminishing returns? Uh, that, that's probably a fair assumption. If you assume mm. that North Korea's intention in these actions is to garnish international responses, and I don't believe that's the case. I'm going to come back to that. So hold that thought from. Okay, so last week, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un celebrated Bring Your Daughter to Work Day uh, by launching a Hwasong-17 missile in her presence that apparently proves that North Korea can strike the U.S. mainland with nuclear-tipped weapons if it wants to. Is this a game changer? No, uh, because they did the same thing back in 2017 with the Hwasong-15, uh, which had the range, right? It, it did have the range. Yeah, right? it did have the range hit almost anywhere in the continent of the United States. In fact, so far, again, I'm not a technical specialist, mm. uh, um, but everything that I've read in, in recent days is still inconclusive as to the range of the Hwasong-17 compared to the Hwasong-15 that was launched in 2015. So again, serious, worth paying attention to, dangerous, uh, but I don't know that it's a game changer because already they've been to that capacity since 2017. Do you see any sign that political leaders in the United States would push for a change of course in U.S. defense policy uh, or in the U.S.-Korea alliance if North Korea could, in fact, provably uh, strike pretty much anywhere on mainland USA? No. So this was the this was the heart of of a real spike in concern around the Korean Peninsula in late 2017, early 2018. Uh, because there were people within the Trump White House who mm. believed that the threat was to the United States, the direct threat to the continental mainland of the United States was unacceptable. Right. Hence, you had that whole era of a bloody nose strategy yep. uh, and, and this feeling that something had to be done. At this point, I think there's, there is broad resignation that there are no quick solutions. 
There's no easy solutions. And in fact, the situation is much more difficult mm -hmm. given the deeply frayed relations with China uh, and Russia. We had Doug Bandow on the uh, podcast earlier. I think he was sitting in the same chair as you're in right now uh, some six months ago who suggested that th there's more uh, and more feeling in Washington that if North Korea can strike the U.S. mainland, that that's an unacceptable risk. Yes, uh, but unacceptable meaning what? Meaning that the U.S. is more likely then to pull back and to say, you know what, Korea, South Korea, you're on your own. Uh, Japan, I, you're on your own. I've known Doug Bando for 35 years, and for 35 years he's been saying the United States should pull its troop out of the Korean Peninsula. And he, he is very consistent. There's one, <laughs> if there's one thing I can say about it, he's very consistent. And, and, and so I, I don't know that there's any scenario which would, would, would cause Doug to, to come up with a different recommendation. Mm -hmm. I don't see that. I don't see... And again, I'm not in Washington, although I was there in September. I don't see any lessening of U.S. commitment for the alliance. In fact, if you look at the meeting between President Yoon and President Biden uh, this past week, yep. uh, you know, rock solid. And in fact, if anything, the broader change of the geostrategic condition or environment worldwide has led to a strengthening of the U.S.-Korea alliance, not a weakening of it. Okay, well, that, you've, you've preempted my next question, which is how is the alliance now? But you're saying it, it's... Uh it's rock solid. There's no daylight. Things are going great. Coordination's good. They did some joint exercises recently, so things are on the up and up. Well, look, on, on a surface level, mm. you might observe that a change in 2020 to a more progressive government in the U.S., yeah. a change in Australia in the May to a more progressive government might seem not to, to, to meld well mm. with the change to a conservative government in mm. South Korea in March. The reality is, however, uh, the conservative government in South Korea is by all intents, uh, intents and purposes pro-alliance, internationalist, pro what we Aussies call a rules-based order, all of which actually it, it comports very well with U.S. strategy in the region, with, with, with kind of regional strategy. And so that means that you know, the alliance was strong during the previous government here because of shared interest on the peninsula and the region. Uh, it, it is much more compatible with the current government because it is not just about the peninsula. It's about a much broader remit in the region. As an ex-American and a, an ex-denizen of the D.C. Beltway, and, and having watched from afar the, uh, the Trump years, uh, which we just alluded to, is the United States a good alliance partner? And if so, who is it a good alliance partner to? During the Trump era, there was incredible uncertainty about that very question, whether you're looking at it from an Australian perspective yeah. or a South Korean perspective or a Japanese or certainly a NATO perspective. Yeah, European, yeah. Uh, because President Trump individually mm -hmm. is a very zero-sum individual, cannot understand the idea of friendships or alliances. Everything has to be, you know, I'm the top and you're the bottom kind of thing. Uh, and that's not what alliances are about. A and um, so, yes, there's no question that the alliance network and framework uh, was under serious threat during the Trump era. There has been a tremendous snapback since, uh, it, uh, but it's a snapback with this niggling concern in the mm. back of your head. Right. What if he comes back? What, right? Or what someone if, like him. What if he was more representative? I, I don't know that there's anyone else more like him. Even if you get Trumpist candidates, you mm -hmm. know, say Governor DeSantis out of Florida, they're Trumpist in approach to U.S. domestic politics. They're not Trumpist in terms of their understanding of, of alliances mm. for foreign policy. So I, I don't see anybody else out there that is saying, let's blow off our closest friends and allies around the world. Because most people who have any understanding of foreign policy understand that the United States' greatest advantage and greatest strength is its allies, its networks, its friends around the globe. Uh, and Trump really did, did a number on them, mm. mercifully. Uh, it was four years and not eight. So you, you kind of you feel like he's a, a one-off in that sense. I hope so. I, I should correct your earlier statement. I, I one of the great things about the closeness of the U.S.-Australia relationships, I maintain my U.S. citizenship, ah. so I'm a dual citizen. Uh, so I've voted in the Australian federal election, and and just last month, I've or this month earlier, I voted in the, the U.S. election, and Arizona did the right thing. I have to say, hey. uh, pushed back some of the election deniers in that front. But I, I do think there is a broad-based societal support within Washington and within society more broadly that understands the importance of alliances. Mm. Um, I, I, I think the events of the last week, particularly the results of the midterms, give me hope that Trump is a fading phenomenon. Mm. Uh, he perhaps didn't get that memo since he immediately thereafter uh, announced his intention to run. He did, but he did so in a room with no sitting members of Congress where yeah. his own daughter didn't come. A and uh, in the, what's happened since has been most interesting. Uh, the fact that you've now got a, a wide spectrum of Republicans who had previously been cowardly to the extreme 
now coming out and saying very, very openly that it's time for Trump to 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 leave the scene and it's time for Republicans to move beyond Trump and everything from Paul Ryan to Chris Christie to to obviously DeSantis himself. And so we'll 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 see how that plays out. They, yeah. they, they've you know they've shown their willingness to say one thing and in, in, and then when things turn mm-hmm. against them to go the other direction. But I, I'm pretty optimistic on that front. How does the U.S. alliance between Japan? Sorry. Let me rephrase it. How does the U.S. alliance with Japan and the U.S. alliance from uh, with Korea, how do those two differ from each other? Well, I spent 25 years in Washington, D.C. viewing U.S. alliance relationships uh, through the prism of Korea versus Japan. Uh-huh. Uh, and, it, you know, looking at various you are the man to ask this status question. of forces agreements and yeah. burden sharing agreements. And it, it was always the two compared to the two. The truth is the differences there mm. aren't nearly as interested interesting as the differences are between them and, say, the relationship with Australia. And I didn't understand that until mm. I moved to Australia nine years ago. Uh, uh, there's something called the Five Eyes, right. uh, which was an intelligence sharing agreement that came to, to be during and immediately after World War II. I thought the Let, closest... Let's see if I can was, remember. So that involves uh, the U.S., Great Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. That is correct. F- that is correct. Literally five countries. And New Zealand is kind of, uh. <laughs> as, as you might imagine. Uh, but... I thought that that relationship was primarily about language mm. and culture and shared history. And it is, but it's actually much more than that. Oh. It's about the legal underpinning for the, the gathering, interpreting, yeah. processing, and sharing, and actioning of intelligence, which is really, really important. It just means that the Australia-U.S. relationship is, is so intimately intertwined and so close that they finish each other's sentences because they know all the same stuff. Right? Mm. Uh, and if you look at the previous five years of the Korean government, Korea was pretty much only interested in Korea, didn't want to talk about the other stuff, where the Australia-U.S. relationship and most of the other five eyes truly are global in scope and focus because of that. And so that, that's a big difference. Right. Going back to your question, you know, uh, look, because of events... Uh, in Japan over the last decade and events in Korea over the last decade, I would have to give the edge to Japan uh, just because of the Abe era and because Japan has been very clear-minded about the change in their strategic environment with the rise of China. And that has led Japan, which had always been a bit of a laggard, right? Korea Mm. had always been more willing, more forward-leaning in terms of alliance relations with the United States, and Japan had to be dragged along. If anything, at this point, Japan is dragging the U.S. and others along, Mm. including Australia. And Korea, until very recently, was the reluctant partner. So you said that uh, it's Japan is kind of dragging the U.S. along now. Is that because it's kind of okay for Japan to be more openly concerned about uh, the rising China than it is for the Republic of Korea? Um, I don't know. It's because it's okay. It's because they are. Well, Uh, 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 um, obviously, Korea has that same latitude. Uh, they've they've obviously got a closer proximity. Yeah, well, and and that's, um, I think that's why. It is, uh, it, you know. Look, if you're North Korea, I get that. I don't know that the proximity makes that much of a difference <laughs> if you're Korean Japan. It's just that the the body politic in Japan, I think, uh, came to it in in a different way. These days, uh, you also talk about not just uh, the Five Eyes and, uh, and the bilateral relationships, but you also talk a lot about uh, the Quad and, and AUKUS. Uh, so could you tell us briefly about those relationships and, and why you see them as important? Well, the Quad is a, an important development in the region, and it is a much-changed development in the region. It began back on the, as a response to the Indian Ocean tsunami where there was a quadrilateral cooperation in response to that, and it led to a, a relatively low-level quadrilateral security dialogue between the United States, Japan, India, and Australia. It became sensitive uh, in the early 2000s, uh, where not all parties really to be concerned, uh, India, Japan, and Australia had quite good relations with China. China was skeptical of it. Uh, and, and there wasn't a lot of appetite for them to move forward on it. So the Quad really went into hibernation until 2016, 2017, uh, when there was a desire to resurrect it. And it was resurrected again on a security level, relatively low-level or working-level military to military talks. Um, it wasn't until 20, I think it was 2020, 2019, uh, when they, they convened it on a, an a minister level, so the foreign minister's level, uh, and then in October of, of 2020, immediately before the U.S. presidential elections, they had another foreign minister's level meeting in, in Japan. And the fact that, uh, again, 
two weeks before U.S. election, the Japanese foreign minister, the Australian foreign minister, the Indian foreign minister are all willing to kind of quickly decamp in the middle of a pandemic, mm -hmm. mind you, to Tokyo, just gave you a sense that those other countries saw those relationships as being very important. Then you saw President Biden come in, a virtual meeting of, of the leaders of the Quad, a leaders level for the first time uh, in March, and then followed by now a series of kind of in-person leaders meetings of this Quad. And the interesting thing is, I said it's in change, it has decided not to focus on security. It's mm. no longer the quadrilateral security dialogue. It is the quad. It's just essentially a coordinating mechanism between the United States, Japan, Australia, and India. Uh, and their agenda has been very much focused on what they call doing good in the region. So pandemic response, you know, vaccines in particular, climate change, technology, maritime domain awareness, things that are designed not to be controversial to Southeast Asia or other countries in the region not to be overly provocative to China. Mm -hmm. And again, the U.S. is a treaty ally of Japan and of Australia. We have very strong trilateral Japan-Australia-U.S. Uh, relations. There's no reason to try to bring India into that, which is not a, a, a treaty ally. I tend to, to be among those who's pleased with the, what the Quad is. There's some people who want it to do more. I'm pretty happy with it as a coordinating mechanism. Uh, so I gave gave a long response on the quad. I apologize, but it's a complex issue. No, it it, it is. It, is China right to be concerned that it, it it kind of? I get the feeling that it feels um, encircled. Uh, that it's sort of an attempt to to keep China down. Um, China is right to see this as a response to China's change, mm. um, because it is Chinese aggression, Chinese assertiveness. And the way China has exercised power in the last decade, in the last five years in particular, that has led Japan to be willing to do this when it wasn't a decade ago, that has led Australia to be willing to do this eagerly when it wasn't a decade ago, and the same is true with India. Uh, and so, yes, I would, I, would, I would characterize it more as a response to China uh, than a provocation to China. But even there... The Quad has been pretty darn careful. Mm -hmm. I mean, you tell me what, what element of the Quad agenda uh, is targeted at China. There are more reactions to or responses to China. Okay, what about AUKUS? What's that all about? It is the security element. It is you know, directly not only a response to China, but targeted at China, if you regard. And, and it, it is also a response to growing Chinese military capabilities and a recognition that the U.S. military alone can't do it all. And, and so... Obviously, the U.S. has treaty allies all throughout the region, but enhancing the capabilities of those treaty allies has become increasingly important. Uh, and so a high-level, really surprising technology-sharing, cooperating, uh, and in high-profile areas agreement between uh, the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia, AUKUS, if you will, um, is, is very much about security. Uh, again, but everybody is focused on the submarines, because they're big and they're sexy, yeah. uh, and there was some confusion about nuclear propulsion versus a nuclear weapon submarine initially. Right. But the the second pillar of AUKUS is probably, uh, in the long run, the more significant. It's just these three countries deciding that they're going to work together much more intimately on and developing technology and deploying technology in the region. And that really is all about enhancing their relative strength in the region. Now, AUKUS is three of the five eyes. Yep. Why didn't they just make one with the other two? I don't know that one New Zealand would be interested or willing, mm -hmm. uh, nor do I know that Canada is interested or willing. I mean, again, Canada, like the United States, is both an Atlantic country and a Pacific country, but its orientation still remains much more Atlantic than the mm -hmm. Canadians are, uh, would, would care to admit. And I'm sure I'll get some, some hate mail from <laughs> Canadians trying to tell me otherwise. But the reality is when it comes to the Indo-Pacific Australia is the natural partner in this region. And again, this was more of an Australian initiative, right? Mm. You know, the Australians wanted the technology. They wanted the closer cooperation. So like, to be honest, like most regional initiatives in the Indo-Pacific or previously the Asia-Pacific over the last 30 years, it was driven by Australia. Hmm. Interesting. Good thing you moved there. Uh, now, would you describe yourself as hawkish? Interesting question. Um, I've been to China, I think, 38 times, 40 cities throughout China, had hundreds of Chinese friends. So I would have never considered myself to be anti-Chinese or anti-China, of course, to be more specific. I am today deeply concerned about the trajectory of China. Uh, and, and, and so that probably would put me in the hawkish camp. 
Yeah, I believe in the need for deterrence. You know, I, I put my American hat back on. You know, the, the old George Washington adage that the surest means of preserving peace is to be prepared for war. I don't think I quoted that exactly correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, I believe in deterrence. Uh, I don't know that deterrence is, is hawkish, right? Uh, I, I actually consider it a little bit more conservative than that. But uh, there is no question in my mind that the post-World War II you know, the post-Cold War, rather, era is, is over. We're, we're in a different era, and, and both on economic policy uh, and on security policy and alliance relationships, you know, we're not in 1990 anymore. We're in a different era, and, and we have to act accordingly. So that, that would probably put me on a, on a hawkish side of things. Have you ever visited North Korea? Been there, depending on how you count it, seven or eight times, yeah. Not okay. for a while, though. Okay, and uh, would you say you're hawkish on North Korea? Um, I have become more hawkish on North Korea, and, and the way I probably would phrase that is I've become more fatalistic uh, or pessimistic on North Korea. Um, in, in that you don't see any good, peaceful outcomes out of this. Yeah, situation. I don't. I don't know. I don't know how you do it. I, I, I mean, uh, um, and again, I'm 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 jaded, and I I recognize that I am in the box thinking, but. All these kind of new ideas that I see people talking about, well, we should try this. And mm. I'm like, I've seen it for 30 plus years, right? And I don't see any fundamental changes on the ground that lead me towards optimism or that would lead me to a change approach on North Korea. Now, having said that, I was early on a big supporter of the, the sunshine policy as articulated by previous Korean President Kim Dae-jung based on Aesop's fable, the mm-hmm. idea that, and I, I firmly believed at that time, shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall, that the more investment, the more travelers, the more tourists, the more religious delegations, the more contact we had with North Korea, the more sunshine, mm. the more that it would affect change. I did see, however, very quickly how the Kim Dae-jung administration and almost every subsequent administration after that quickly realized that they didn't want a collapse of North Korea. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so my, my analogy is it was a sunshine policy where the Korean governments of both stripes quickly gave North Korea a parasol and sunblock with SPF 5000 to try to prevent, uh, protect North Korea from the, the risks uh, of, of the world and, and to, to buoy them up. Today, we're in a da- very different world. Uh, I think, to be honest, the real concern about North Korea is China and China's influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the window for unification is closing because of, of China and Chinese influence uh, and the relative strengthening of the North Korea regime. And again, I've been watching this for 30 years. Mm. But yeah, hawkish, again, I, 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 those are the phrase. I'm, I'm, I'm quite jaded is probably the word I say. Jaded. The notion that, that, I, you know, that, that we're going to have these Pollyannish if we were just nice to them. Right. You know, and, and again, and Trump did so much damage on this area mm-hmm. uh, because you, know, you could say in the past that one of the fundamental problems with the relationship is there was this imbalance uh, in, in the level of attention North Korea would require to make changes and the level of attention the United States was willing to give. But the fact that we gave presidential level attention uh, means it, it ain't going to happen again. Uh, and more importantly, everything from the North Koreans' constitutions to every action they're making right now lead me to believe mm. that there is no longer a nuclear program on the table. There's no longer a missile program on the table. Uh, and again, as I alluded to earlier, the fundamental difference between now and the previous 30 years is that where China and Russia, for most of that time, yep. were partners with the international community in working to solve a difficult and thorny problem, unsuccessfully though it was, mm-hmm. today they're, they're not partners in that endeavor. Going back five years ago to 2017, when there was talk of a, uh, a bloody nose strike on North Korea to get them to, to talk seriously with, uh, with the United States, were, would, were you in favor of that at the time? No, I was alarmed by it. Former Australian ambassador to the U.S., former... Def- Australian defense minister and, and just stepped down as uh, the governor of Western Australia, Kim Beasley. Kim, Beasley. Know. Kim and I wrote a paper in January of 2018 for Australian Foreign Affairs magazine, which Kim very subtly titled, North Korea, Prepare for War. Mm. I, I was flat out alarmed because I thought the risk of a conflict with North Korea initiated by the United States had grown unacceptably high. Uh, and with the Trump administration, I had no confidence that the, the United States would adequately consult with South Korea mm. in, in that era. 
In other words, going back to our earlier conversation, people like uh, H.R. McMasters, who was the National Security Advisor at the time, had concluded that the risk posed directly to the continent of the United States was unacceptable. And so in that context, something had to be done. And again, this was not an era of close coordination with Mm -hmm. allies, if you recall. Uh, And and so my real worry was that the U.S. would somehow push and instigate something, Uh, hence the bloody nose strategy. And the unofficial White House response to reports of a bloody nose strategy was to say, no, we don't have a bloody nose strategy. It's a decapitation strategy, which, you know, again, it really raised my alarm at Mm -hmm. the period of time. One other person who was clearly alarmed at the time was the then South Korean President Moon Jae-in. Mm. And so I was quite initially supportive of his desperate last-minute diplomacy uh, around the Olympics, one, you know, yep. to, to, uh, given the considerable investment in the Olympics to kind of t- tone down the rhetoric and the tensions immediately before that, you know, the, getting the Kim Jong-un's younger sister to come with a cheerleading group was a relatively small price to play, pay for the success of those Olympics. And then the summitry that, that, that followed was is really about just buying time to make sure that South Korea didn't have its own destiny ripped away from it by a, a product, a, aggressive United States at the time. So I tend to be in the more boring international cordon, co- coordination, cooperation, maintain, again, to, to put an Aussieism here, mm. the rules-based order. What's the American equivalent of the rules-based order? Is there a phrase that's used yeah, more in the United States? Incre- increasingly, the United States is adopting the Aussie vernacular. Huh, interesting. Uh, I didn't uh, know it was Aussie. Okay. Uh, um, in, in the same way that uh, um, you know, Indo-Pacific really yeah. is something that the Americans adopted from the Aussies, not from mm. the Koreans all think it came from Prime Minister Abe Shinzo in Japan. Uh. Abe Shinzo back in India in 2006, 2007 gave a great speech about the confluence of the two great oceans and arc of freedom and prosperity. But the first government official anywhere in the region to use Indo-Pacific in a document was 2013, Stephen Fest Smith in the Australian Defense White Paper. His successor, David Johnson, different party, did it in the 2016 Defense Mm. White Paper. Julie Bishop, framed all of Australian foreign policy in a 2017 foreign policy white paper on Indo-Pacific. And uh-huh. even prior to that, in 2011, when Obama was in, in, in Brisbane, when Hillary Clinton came to Perth to launch the Perth US Asia Center, uh-huh. they learned quickly to say the term Indo-Pacific because they knew Aussies liked it. Uh-huh. Uh, and that obviously influenced Harry Harris to change the name of Pacific Command to Indo-Pacific. So I give you that history because in the same way, when I was in the US, everybody used the term the, the liberal international system right. are the post-World War II liberal international system. And Aussies are, you know, had, had long-term rules-based order. Rules based but order. look at recent speeches by U.S. officials. Mm. Rules-based order, rules-based order. Um, and look at the uh, announcement of an Indo-Pacific policy by, by uh, the current Korean president, Yung Sagel, used the term rules-based order. Mm. So not, not a bad turn of events. Uh, back to uh, to testing by North Korea. You, so you believe, as you said earlier, that uh, when North Korea tests new weapons systems, it's primarily driven by domestic technical requirements. Why do you say that, and how do we know this to be true? Well, look, uh, there's an entire industry that is convinced that North Korea tests just to mess up people's weekends and holidays. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and it, that feels like a parody, though. It it, it does, but I mean, and I see it every single test. Like, I'm gonna, I'm going on a holiday this week, and I sure hope North Korea doesn't mess up my holiday weekend. Uh, you know, from people who follow this very closely, I, I've had just long experiences over decades now uh, that North Korean foreign ministry officials uh, are, are tend to be out of the loop in terms of what's going on with the missile program, uh, way back to 1998 uh, when the first Tepodong missile was launched over Japan on September 28th, I think, of 1998. I was with. Kim Gae-gwan, the North Korean vice foreign minister at the time. So uh, I believe this is, you know, that North Korea has a technical program. They need a test for the technical program. There may be instances where they, there's messaging done, but this goes back to our previous conversation. If you presume that the intent of North Korea's nuclear missile programs is just a bargaining chip, that they're just trying to get our attention, well, then, then that makes sense to try to time it just to you, you hear this all the time. North Korea doesn't like being ignored. Mm. And, and so clearly, in the month of November, they must have tested this many times just so they're not ignored. There is going to be some signaling there, but the primary driver is going to be technical. It's going to be the requirements of the progress of those programs. So when there are likely to be other factors at play, such as signaling or sending a message or asking for attention, how would we know that? Usually the North Koreans will tell us. 
in a statement. Yeah, they say that afterwards. So they'll, right? they'll launch the missiles and then they'll write a statement and say, see, we need or attention. Or immediately something. before that, they okay. won't say, we need attention. Mm-hmm. They will say, what you're doing is, is very detrimental and behold our mighty deterrent. You know, fear us and quiver. Right? That, that, that's, that's the more likely scenario. So again, to take this month, for example, did the technical requirements require 23 missile tests in a day? Mm. Probably not. Probably not. You know, that was clear in advance of, of a whole range of other global developments, just a, uh, he, I, I am North Korea, hear me roar kind mm. of moment. But where I'm more skeptical is around the specific attempt to influence specific talks or, or specifically the, the holiday or weekend disruption kind of notion that, that you know, is my very first trip to North Korea back in 1995, you know, I, I had read numerous accounts you can quickly fall into this delusion that everything is staged for you, mm. that there are thousands of people lining the roads just for you, and it was a whole Potemkin visit, visit, visit just for you. That might be true if you're a head of state, right. but if you're just Joe Schmo going through town, it's, it's a highly stilted, highly choreographed society. It ain't about you. And so if you're an analyst, you know, it ain't about your holiday. In what capacity did you visit in 95? Uh, this was a Rockefeller Foundation-organized Track 2 delegation that brought visitors from Japan and the United States to just explore mm. you know, the potential of cooperation in a range of different different areas. Sounds like glorified tourism. Yeah, uh, tourism is, is probably not the words that I would say. I mean, there was a series of a whole bunch of meetings. Yep. Tourism generally applies that it's an enjoyable pursuit. <laughs> Now, North Korea, of course, hasn't uh, had any formal, at least publicly acknowledged communication with the leadership of South Korea or the United States really um, since the middle of 2019, I, I feel like. Uh, so what, what do you think North Korea wants from the U.S. and South Korea right now, as far as you can see? Uh, nothing right now. So in, in as much as it, it may be occasionally sending signals, those signals are not, hey, guys, we want to talk. Those signals are something else. But what it wants is to be left alone to do its own thing. North Korea wants to be a recognized nuclear power uh, with a constitutionally enshrined nuclear and missile deterrent uh, to protect the, 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 the very regime itself. That's what they want. Um, um, they would certainly love at some point for that to be accepted, right, and for them to be you know, formally recognized and have normalized relations. They're not, I think at this point, interested in negotiations for negotiation's sake. They're not interested in uh, negotiations you know, to give up their nuclear program or, or missile programs, to be sure. And they have demonstrated over decades now uh, and a willingness to, to put their people through extreme suffering, be it COVID response, there's so much we don't know right now, mm-hmm. be it through food shortages and the, the horrors of the, of the famine in the late 1990s to maintain that priority. So what they want is they want regime survival. They have decided definitively that regime survival requires the asymmetric threat of nuclear weapons uh, and and long-range missiles to develop those nuclear weapons. Do you think that uh, North Korean leadership believes that if it just holds fast on that point, that eventually it can get sanctions lifted? Yeah, I think probably long term, uh, that's what their hope is. Although uh, you'd have to think that, you know, for one, they have seen administrations both in Seoul and in Washington come and go. Mm. At some point, you're going to think some fatalism is going to set in that that day is not coming. Uh, And so they're just settling in just to keep their bubble going as long as they possibly can. Is that a realistic hope that sanctions, including not just a the individual country-to-country sanctions, but also the United Nations sanctions, will eventually just, people will just give up and become fatalistic, as you say, and lift them? I don't think so, not internationally. Uh, I think functionally that has already happened with mm. Russia and China. Mm-hmm. And so that's why when, when you asked me, what do they want now? I said, nothing. Nothing. Uh, because they're getting, you know, not what they could get, mm-hmm. where they were more cooperative, but they're getting what they absolutely must have mm-hmm. uh, f- from, from China and Russia. Now, this question is a long setup, so uh, bear with me. A lot of observers uh, saw the possibility high of a North Korean nuclear test, the seventh, taking place sometime, uh, well, actually all throughout this year, but then there was particularly a period between the Chinese Communist Party convention and the U.S. midterm general elections. This obviously did not take place. 
recently, the South Korean Minister of Unification pointed to the National People's Congress in China in March next year as a possible marker that could affect Pyongyang's decision-making process to go ahead with the test. So let me start with the basics. Do you expect a seventh North Korean nuclear test in the next 12 months? And if so, will this be driven primarily by domestic technical requirements? Short answer is I don't know. And here I will contradict myself. Mm. Um, while I said that, that North Korea's testing is primarily driven by technical requirements, that is true. Uh, it doesn't mean, however, that it is done in a vacuum without any consideration for the international environment. So obviously, uh, the self-declared and imposed moratorium on tests during you know, the Trump holding hands Singapore-Hanoi era, that was a political decision. Uh, and it was made at the top, and it preempted the technical requirements mm -hmm. of the program. Uh, it is possible, and in fact, I think likely, that the Chinese made it very clear to the North Koreans that a nuclear test in and around the party Congress would not be helpful. It's also possible that they've made it clear that anything before next March would not be helpful or not helpful, period. How long that holds, whether they'll test or not, the truth is I have no idea. Uh, a lot of speculation. There, there's enough evidence out there that I've read to suggest that they have the capability, mm. uh, that they've made the necessary preparations, and they certainly could do it. But there's nothing that has led me to believe that they will do it and that I would be able to say to you or anybody else with confidence, they will definitely do it in the next 12 months, right? Now, they certainly can. They have the capability. And the question really is just going to be, again, not how they judge the likely U.S. or South Korean response, how they judge the likely Chinese response. So, mm, okay, so you think... Do you think that external events such as uh, U.S. or South Korean elections or South Korean drills or U.S. rock joint drills or Chinese party conferences, people's conference, congresses, etc., factor largely into North Korea's decision-making process? I mean, as you said, of course, nothing's in a vacuum. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, uh, look, I, I tend to, and it's not a clean division, but I tend to take the, the nuclear and missile testing program and development program and messaging away from intra-Korean relations. And I, because everything I've heard from North Korea is what they say and what they do, that is something that they're, they view as is, is part of the relationship with the United States uh, and a defense against the United States as a nuclear power. You know, and so the notion that nuclear tests or missile tests are tied to you know, U.S.-South Korean exercises or an election in South Korea I, I've seen no evidence of that. Mm. I mean, the, the North Koreans are remain remarkably dismissive of their much more successful, much more influential, you know, much more powerful southern neighbor, South Korea. You know, for all the compromises and groveling that the Moon administration did over five years, they received nothing but disdain from the North Koreans in the period of time. And the North Korean view is that South Korea has nothing to say about their nuclear program or missile programs, right? Um, again, you can talk a little bit on, on the fringes of the, about, about certain types of missiles and that thing. On the other side, though, obviously, joint U.S.-South Korean military exercises have engendered artillery shelling, overflights. Those, I see, are much more, much more directly responsive. Uh, they, you know, North Korea is, and, and their rhetoric is directly responsive on both levels, right? So you'll see both of those. So I think yesterday I was, uh, we, we heard Kim Yo-jung, you know, Kim Jong-un's younger sister, condemning the UN Security Council and her, she's got great vocabulary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, and uh, you know, so you'll see those levels of political condemnations, both on the nuclear missile side, but also on the inter-Korean side, delivered by different people in different fora. So I tend to make that distinction. I don't know if that's helpful or not. Uh, it may not be absolute, but it's, it's, it's better, it's the prism through which I tend to view these developments. Now, we're in a time when China and Russia are not uh, cooperating much within the uh, the United Nations Security Council framework in terms of uh, deterring North Korea. Some say that they, both of those countries, might provide cover uh, for any nuke, uh, North Korean nuclear test or missile test. Do you think that's the case? And, and if not, how are they most likely to respond to a seventh nuclear test? Really important question. And again, I don't know. And I, I think it's pretty clear that North Korea doesn't know either. Hence this intense speculation about will they test or will they not test. North Korea has been pretty good at pushing the envelope. Mm. Uh, during the Trump era, they got away with a lot. 
because they were doing so in the environment where Trump was so over the top in terms of his rhetoric. And so their responses could easily be couched to China uh, as, as appropriate in that highly escalatory environment, at least in terms of rhetoric, you know, my button is bigger than your mm. button kind of silliness, right? But in the current era where the U.S. slash international community's response has been limited to G7 statements, movement in the U.N. Security Council will appeal to broad principles, I think China would view a North Korean nuclear test as unhelpful and unnecessarily provocative. And, and a lot of Chinese analysts and leaders remain pretty disdainful of North Korea. Mm. Uh, they tend to underestimate North Korea's cap capabilities and seriousness uh, because they're China. And China is pretty full of itself right now in the world right now. And so I think the result would be pretty negative. But that kind of depends on where U.S.-China relations are at the moment. Mm. Uh, the fact that we had a nice smiley handshake with, with, with Biden yeah. actually, I think, raises the stakes for North Korea. And to be honest, China is a far more important, important player than Russia. Russia is right. just a spoiler, and they have been for 30 years. They're not, they're not a serious player on the Korean Peninsula. But they have that, uh, that veto power within the United Nations Security yeah. Council. So it, it seems at least possible that if North Korea does a nuclear test, that even if China didn't like it, and even if Russia wasn't too enamored with it, that they may act as a spoiler within the UNSC to prevent any, any strong response. Do you think that's likely? Yeah, I, I think the UNSC pathway has kind of run its, its usefulness. I mean, mm. we have, I think, six different sets of UN Security Council sanctions resolutions against North Korea. Uh, they're not being enforced or implemented right now. So I don't know that the priority of the U.S. or the international community more broadly uh, after a hypothetical further North Korean nuclear test would be immediately say, let's go back to the UN Security Council. Let's get a new set of sanctions resolutions. I think it would probably be a little bit more targeted, uh, and it would probably be one where they were not relying upon China or Russia, because mm -hmm. I think that that sense of thing. And here, let me make an important statement. For the bulk of the last 30 years, Russia was actually a really helpful player in that, because during the Cold War, Russia and the U.S. developed a real, I don't know if you'd call it camaraderie, but a professional respect, mm. because together they built the international system of arms control and monitoring and stuff like that. And North Korea was a threat to something that the Soviet Union and the U.S. had built and worked on and maintained together. So Russia was always a pretty responsible actor on that. We're in the kind of Vladimir Putin, wounded dog, poke you in the eye kind of phase right now. I, don't, I can't predict where they would be, but there's a lot of, of muscle memory within the Russian system. So I wouldn't rule that out either. Now, how do you respond to critics on the left who say that North Korea feels under permanent threat from the U.S. and South Korea and even Japan, and that its nuclear and missiles programs are a reaction to that and an attempt by Pyongyang to protect itself in the only way that it sees as effective? I would agree with them, but I would also say that at this point, we are where we are. There's no easy path out of that, right? Because the fact also remains that even without nuclear weapons, even without missiles, North Korea as a regime, uh, as a state, has it proven itself to be a classic bad actor. And you can rationalize why it's a classic bad actor, but whether it is smuggling, whether it's counterfeiting, whether it's, whether it's drugs, whether it is support for terrorism, whether it, is, where, whether it is exporting components and materials to the worst actors around the world. And again, you can say they've been forced into those avenues, you know, a life, they've been forced into a life of crime. The reality is, they are a threat today. They're a threat to South Korea. They're a threat to South Korean society. And now increasingly, as we've discussed, they're a threat not just to South Korea, but to the U.S. And from, and again, here I'm going to put my Aussie hat back on. They're a threat to the rules-based order. Mm. We tend to think of rules-based order as being about trade agreements. But think about this from an Australian perspective. Why is Australia, way down in the Southern Hemisphere, so vocal against North Korea on every opportunity? Is it just because they're running dogs with the Americans? I, I would posit a different reason. Australia has long had two basic strategies for maintaining its maneuverability, its, its, its sovereignty, if you will, in the world, despite a relatively small population, on a reliance on an alliance relationship with the United States and reliance upon the rules-based order. And that means that despite the fact that Australia is technologically, scientifically, economically, diplomatically, in every way, a more advanced country economy slash than North Korea, Australia has made a sovereign decision 
not to develop long-range missiles, which we could, not to develop nuclear weapons, which we could, but instead to rely upon the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, of which we're a signatory, to rely upon the International Atomic Energy Agency, of which we're a very strong supporter and all the safeguards with that, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. You know, we, we like the system because that protects us. And when a country like North Korea, and to be honest, you try to find me a country that is not more acceptable as a nuclear power than North Korea. I mean, Ecuador. Pull, pull, come to, wouldn't you rather that Ecuador had nuclear weapons than North Korea? <laughs> Probably, right? Given the nature of the regime and also given the nature of the political regime in North Korea. So again, we can't divorce that from how does the North Korean regime exist? It's the nature of the regime. If this is a small and democratic elected and friendly country, we'd probably be a lot less worried about it, right? But the nature of the regime itself gives us concerns, and you can't wish that away. Is it not the case that the U.S. and South Korea provoke North Korea through their own military activities and exercises? Uh, like in any conflict, there's, there's a chicken and egg element here, right? Uh, both sides rightly see and feel threat from the other, uh, and both sides see the other as provoking and responding in the case of this long-standing dispute with North Korea, the biggest threat that they face is internal, right? Uh, and, and so the notion somehow that we could just, if we were just nice to them, they would be fine. And, and they, would be, they would give up all their nuclear weapons and they'd be happy. Uh, again, I don't know that you can say that we've fully tested that theory. But again, it goes to me, it goes back to the nature of the regime. How does a regime like North Korea maintain its, its grip on power? Is it through democratic legitimacy? Is it because the people are truly happy and love them? Or is it through control over the movement of people, control over the means of production, control over the flow of information? Yes. Control through party and other mechanisms like we're seeing in China. You know, so for, for 30 years, I had great hope that North Korea had become more like China. <laughs> Turns out China's become more like North Korea. You were once the associate director of the program on conflict resolution at the Atlantic Council of the United States. What did you learn there that could be applied to the Korea situation? <laughs> There's a story there <laughs> that the name Program on Conflict Resolution led a lot of academics who were experts on conflict resolution to come to me to want to collaborate. But it was just a euphemistic name oh. to rationalize the fact that we were working on North Korea out of the Atlantic Council and North Korea wasn't in the Atlantic. <laughs> North Korea was in the Pacific. Yeah. And so we had to come up with some, some broad framing as to what we were doing. But the program I ran for two and a half, almost three years there was a remarkable era in U.S. history. We had funding from the U.S. government in a grant mm. to bring North Korean delegations to the United States for negotiations. Uh, it's, again, inconceivable. Track 1.5 uh, or Track 1.5. No, Track 1. Oh, I see. Track 1 delegations. Government to government. Government to government. You know, so I think over the course, I can't remember the exact number, but well over 20 delegations over the course of two years brought to the United States under the guise of a, you know, a Track to program, mm. but the official delegations who then went to, you know, because if you think about North Korea at that period of time, right after the Geneva Agreed Framework, we were trying to make things better, but a deeply impoverished country in the midst of a horrible famine. Mm. Uh, and so... So this is in the uh, mid-90s. In the mid-90s. Yeah. So 97, 98, 99. Uh, and that really ended with the North Korean missile test over Japan in September 1998. The program collapsed after that. Mm. Um, but the, uh, without quoting or giving the name, uh, before pursuing the grant and running the program, a U.S. government official told me, look, we can't negotiate with them. We can't see them. We can't meet them. And so that, that was a different era. Right. So we, we did work. We tried conflict resolution, but no, no broader academic underpinning behind it. No, so no long-term lessons that we could still pick up today? Oh, look, people to people matter. Negotiations matter. I remain very, again, I have no fear of negotiations. I don't think that we should you know, we should we shouldn't be talking to North Korea. We should be talking to them at this point. And we, being the United States, the Western world, even South Korea, have been pretty open about our desire to do so. We have be, received pretty consistently a complete disinterest, if not a hostility, on North mm. Korea's side from that. So when President Donald Trump uh, sat down and negotiated with Kim Jong Un twice, and also had the standing meeting at at Panmunjom, you, were you in favor of that? No, uh, because of my deep doubts about Donald Trump, but I, as the meeting in Singapore took place, I, I can recall vividly just saying, look, Gordon, you're by definition inside the box. Maybe it takes a stunning level of naivete, mm. you know, just to try something different. Maybe it'll work. We'll give it a try. Be open-minded, be open-minded. 
And then when Donald Trump marches out and announces his four-point agreement that he reached with the North Koreans, and every single point, you know, it represents a remarkable step back from decades of concerted international community work on North Korea, tremendous compromise to North Korean positions, undermining the basis for future negotiations going forward, and then declared peace in our time without, not, not only without making progress, but also undermining the foundations for progress, I was flabbergasted, just flabbergasted. So why is this conflict so intractable? Because it goes to the core of the North Korean regime. Um, What we want and what we offer to the North Koreans is opening, reform, becoming a normal nation, becoming like the rest of us. But going back to what I said earlier, if your regime is built on a foundation of control over the flow of information, control over the movement of people, control of the means of production. You know, the process of opening reform causes you Mm. to undermine each of the very pillars of your regime, which is why I've now seen for 30 years, one hesitant step forward, two steps back, right? Um, So again, this is where I I hit my fundamental pessimism. The fundamental issue is the nature of the regime. And I have seen nothing, despite the fact that, you know, my first days in Washington, D.C., I was saying, well, Watch for Kim Jong Kim Kim Jong Il, right? Oh yeah, he's gonna be a reformer, you know. He and then oh, Kim Jong Un, he spent his time in Switzerland. He's gonna be a reformer. It's the very nature of the regime. And to be honest, we're seeing some cautionary tales in Beijing after the Party Congress there too. So I'd like to say that yeah, eventually we're just gonna come to some some negotiated agreement where we'll all live peacefully and happily. But I don't know that that regime can do that because the the world is hostile to it. Hmm. Uh, Are there more influential voices nowadays calling for South Korea to either get its own nuclear weapons or for the U.S. to deploy nuclear assets in South Korea again? Uh, There certainly seem to be. You're here in Seoul. You'd you'd hear them more directly than I would. Uh, I've been reading about them a lot for the last, last year. And obviously, one of the uncomfortable conclusions of my jaded pessimism if indeed North Korea is not going to give up its nuclear weapons and we as an international community will not accept them as a mm. nuclear power, what does that mean then for a country like Japan or mm. Korea? And as long as the U.S. maintains a credible deterrent, as long as the U.S., what we call extended deterrence, the nuclear umbrella, umbrella remains credible, countries like Japan uh, and Korea, Taiwan, Australia, uh, Philippines, Thailand, etc., I think, you know, remain firmly in the non-proliferation camp. The costs of going nuclear are too high, both financially, uh, diplomatically, uh, and security-wise. So I don't, I don't see that short-term, but no question, the longer this problem goes on, uh, those voices will probably grow. You say that your views on regional security uh, and, and alliances have changed a lot since uh, leaving Washington, D.C. and moving to Australia. Uh, tell us a little bit why and how that is. Oh, it depends on what you're talking about. My views of, of China, North Korea, and U.S. Are still remain largely Washington-influenced views because that's where I worked on them for a quarter of a century. Yeah. My views of, of Southeast Asia, of India, of the Indian Ocean, uh, of the Indo-Pacific as a construct are very much Aussie views. Mm. Um, and they say where you stand depends on where you sit. When I was in Washington, I viewed the Indo-Pacific as a silly academic construct uh, that you know, two-thirds of the globe might as well be global. It didn't, wasn't helpful at all in policy. Sitting in Perth, I love the Indo-Pacific. You know, we're Australia's Indian Ocean capital. Yeah. Uh, and it's not a surprise that the, the most effective uh, proponents politically of that construct have all come from Western Australia. Mm. Australia's a two-ocean, if not a three-ocean nation, uh, and that's really impacted that. But there's also, to me, uh, a broader explanatory power that is attractive that has led not just Australia, the U.S., and India and Japan on board here, but now Korea, Europe, the U.K., France, you know, Canada, because they all recognize fundamentally the Asia-Pacific. And again, remember, the Asia-Pacific era is still relatively young, mm. 30 years. Yeah. You know, when I began my professional career, nobody used the term Asia-Pacific. We talked about East Asia, Southeast Asia, uh. South Asia, and Australia was part of this mystical land called Oceania. Yeah hanging out by Atlantis, somewhere out there in the middle of nowhere, right? Yes. And it really wasn't until the late 80s that South Korea and Japan wanted to integrate South into Southeast Asia. And Australia and New Zealand said, hey, we want to be part of Asia. And so we had Asia Pacific. But the problem is APEC, you know, the fundamental organization of the Asia Pacific era, did not include India. In fact, 
India's absence in Thailand this week was quite striking because mm. you ended up having six countries make a very strong statement on North Korea, and the only member of the Quad that was not there was India. Right. And they would have been there, I think, had they been part of APEC, but they're not, right? So at its core, the Indo-Pacific is about how do you incorporate India into the Asia-Pacific? Now, most importantly, India deserves to be incorporated on its own right. They're already a member of the East Asia Summit. The, the Indo-Pacific is a reality, right, well, you know, in, in that context. But on a political level, it's also important because as China's influence grew within the Asia-Pacific, you know, there was growing concern about the outside influence of a single power in a closed system, if you will. And you have two choices. You can contest it, which nobody really wanted to do, or you increase the size of the pie. And by making it Indo-Pacific, it dilutes the relative power of everyone, including China and including the United States and Japan and Australia, but brings India in, and then it becomes more complicated. And I, I'm a great fan of complexity. I don't like a G2 world. I don't want U.S. versus China. Together, they're only 34% of the global GDP. Mm. Why are we talking about U.S. versus China? You know, what I really want is a world where Great Britain can declare that they are an Indo-Pacific power and join the CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, where Germany sends you know, frigates here up to Korea and Japan, where the French declare themselves an Indo-Pacific power, and the Netherlands and Canada are all part of this region because that complicates decision-making. It, it democratizes it, and it strengthens what I consider to be the rules-based order. I like that. That's better. Complexity is good. It makes things tougher for China, who wants it to be G2, mano y mano. Didn't India make its position a little bit awkward uh, with its uh, response to Russia's war on Ukraine this year? I don't think so. And I think the other members of the Quad have been remarkably uh, understanding. Uh, because obviously India, one, is not a treaty ally of the United States. And during the long years of the Cold War, relied very much on Russia for armament. Mm. Uh, India's primary security concern right now is China. Uh, and in their ability to defend themselves in their land border, and particularly against China, they rely heavily on Russian armament. And the notion that somehow they're just going to give that up in, in response for what? Do they have any, they have any great confidence that, that U.S. and Japan and Australia and others would come to their aid, would have the capability to come to their aid in that type of conflict? No. So they've got to take care of their own national interests. Mm. But India has also been very effective at expressing its discontent uh, with Russia. So it's not, not been as overt as we may want to, but we have the freedom to be overt because we have the freedom of the, the, those ties that India has. So I, I, to be honest, I'm quite patient with India on this front uh, and quite pleased with the trajectory they're tracking. I have no question where they're going on this front. Last question. Did you move to Western Australia to avoid a coming nuclear war between the U.S. and North Korea? You know, um, back in the Cold War, uh, Stanley Kubrick, who did a um, uh, you know, number of influential movies, uh, what's, what's, what's the one of the, the cowboy riding down in the missile? Oh, uh, uh, Dr. Strangelove. Dr. Strangelove. He was reputed, and actually I read a newspaper article about this, to be planning to move to Western Australia because wow. he considered it as going to be the one place on yep. the planet safe from nuclear war. West Australians like to consider themselves the most isolated capital city in the world. It's yeah. actually not true. Oh. I mean, Honolulu is far away, farther away from any other capital city than Perth is. Mm. And we've spent a lot of time turning that notion on its head, saying if you look north, we're in the same time zone as Singapore, Hong Kong, Manila, and Beijing. And within a two-hour time zone bandwidth, we've got 60% of the world's population and all of its opportunity. You know who's isolated? Melbourne and Sydney. Mm. Hanging out there, defending us against the Trans-Tasman Straits and the Penguins. Ain't nothing down there. Whereas we're closer to Singapore than Sydney, we're closer to, 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 to Jakarta than we are to Canberra and much more in that region. And I think that's actually going to become more and more true going forward. So a bit of parochialism there. But i tell you another story. Mm. Uh, in, I watched, rewatched on a plane the old 1981 movie, I think it was, War Games ah, with Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick, very young and, uh, Matthew Broderick. And it's, it's, a, it's a scenario in which the U.S. You know, nuclear launch systems are all taken over by a computer, yep. uh, and, and he you know, has to learn that you can't win this war. And so it's this great line, the only way to win the game is not to play at all. Ah, it, it, yes. But in these scenarios, this computer has to run through a thousand scenarios. I'm watching the screen, and now I'm newly sensitive to Perth because I live there. In every one of the scenarios on screen, Perth gets taken out. So, <laughs> so I can't claim that you know, if the world goes, that Perth is any safer than the others. But I will claim that it's probably the best quality of life on the planet in terms of true Mediterranean climate, glorious beaches, uh, and 
in a very self-serving way, if the economic center of gravity was in Northeast Asia when I began my career 35 years ago and has shifted southwest for the last 30 years, if I look ahead and the world doesn't end, uh, we look at the rise of India, of Vietnam, Indonesia, of ASEAN as a whole, I think the economic center of gravity continues to ship southwest. And that puts Perth as the closest kind of major Western city hmm. uh, with the climate environment we enjoy to that region. So I don't think I'll be bored for, for the last phase of my career. <laughs> well, thank you once again, Dr. Gordon Flake, for coming on the NK News podcast today. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. Listeners, you can find Gordon Flake on Twitter at LG Flake. Uh, and don't forget, if you already have an NK News subscription, take a look at our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access and free membership, trial membership, that is, at membership at nknews.org today. Also, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, go to Arias Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this episode, and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks, and listen again next time. 